Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to episode number 11 of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Catherine Roy, who is Chief Retirement Strategist for J.P. Morgan. In this role, she's responsible for delivering timely retirement-related insights to financial advisors and has focused on the retirement income-related landscape for more than 15 years. Catherine specializes in identifying themes, strategies, and solutions that can help advisors successfully partner with individuals in the transition and distribution life stages, and she's a top speaker at major industry and firm-specific conferences and events. And I think at the end of this episode, you're going to understand why. On today's episode, Catherine shares her insights from J.P. Morgan's research, like their guide to retirement, as well as findings from their collaborative efforts with the Employee Benefit Research Institute around spending and savings behavior of American households. We discuss retiree spending behavior patterns, sequence of return risk, the impact of healthcare costs on retirement income and spending, the role of guaranteed income for plan participants and retirees, and how plan sponsors and advisors can redesign the participant experience to incorporate retirement income tiers that meet the evolving needs of participants who choose to stay in plan post-retirement. I really enjoyed this conversation with Catherine. She's super sharp and has a tremendous working knowledge of the retirement issues and challenges facing American workers, which she communicates in a really practical, understandable way. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Fiduciary You Podcast. Catherine Roy, welcome to the Fiduciary You Podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to a, a really interesting discussion and one all my listeners and audience can glean your insights. I was saying before we started recording that I think you might have no disrespect to any of the previous guests, but I think you might have the coolest title of anybody who's been on the, the, the show so far as chief retirement strategist at JP Morgan. So what does that look like? Where, where do you spend your, your time focused on day to day as chief retirement strategist? Yeah, sure. It's actually a name that, or a title that I, I gave myself. I, when I joined JP Morgan, obviously I'm doing retirement research and training for advisors and investors, you know, anything retirement related across the spectrum. So whether it's 401k all the way up to you know, individual advisors that are working with clients. And what I found is that you know, our organization, as well as the, our industry, understands what a market strategist is and a chief market strategist who's out talking about the markets and the economy. And so what I wanted to do is find a, a name that could be analogous to that. And so Chief Retirement Strategist really, I think, hit the nail on the head because essentially I'm doing the same thing. I'm thinking about uh, and researching with my team themes, strategies, uh, issues, concerns, questions that come through on all the different retirement-related topics and deliver our insights uh, directly back. That's that's great. I think it's also, I mean, that's a total power. That's like a boss move when you give yourself your own title. So. Yeah, I had to be a chief at some point in my career, right? We all aspire to that. That's super cool. You know, one of the things you had mentioned was the research that you and your team do. And, and, you know, as somebody who has been in the industry for a long time and who pours over lots of data and research and sometimes feels like, you know, I'm I'm inundated with it. And I I think many other advisors feel the same way. I, I do think that you guys at JP Morgan, especially your team, you put out some of the the best research that that I've seen. It's one of you know one of the things I think that you guys do is the, you know, there's the guide to the markets, but the guide to retirement, which is is, you know, every year I think one of the, the best resources and really at the end of the day, puts the 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 right ideas and best practices and research in the hands of you know kind of the practitioner base, if you will, that thing can 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 implement that. And you know, I, I want to spend time today talking about you know some of the research you've done around the participant experience and and retirement for you know retirement plan participants and investors. You've done a lot of research and analysis on retiree spending. As I read some of your 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 stuff, you know, one of the things that was interesting was that you you broke down and delineated between spending behavior and something called the spending curve, the spending surge and spending volatility to really, I think, outline the kind of life cycle of once somebody leaves the workforce and has to start to generate their own income, they're not getting a paycheck, what that looks like. Could you describe each of those and, you know, why they're important? 
Sure. I think, you know, one of the big advantages we have at JP Morgan is that we are part of a bank that has banking and lending relationships with half of America. And so one of the data assets that we're able to tap into, which I have really enjoyed doing over the last five years, is this idea of spending behaviors. And when we think about retirement plans for sponsors, you know, from a JP Morgan perspective, our goal is to help as many participants get across the finish line as we possibly can, reflective of their actual behaviors. And so we've done, you know, over 20 years of research on the participant saving and you know, withdrawal experience and investing experience. But what we hadn't really been able to x-ray into is that liability side once they transition into retirement. And what does that actual spending look like? We've all, I think, done income replacement research that highlights, you know, 70 to 80% generally is where people need to be. And then, you know, candidly, we assume that's a static, you know, grows with inflation type of a number. And so what was really eye-opening to us five years ago when we started to look both at the consumer expenditure survey data, which shows it clearly, but then also factoring in you know, different profiles of participants and household wealth levels, et cetera, that spending is very different than what I think we've always assumed it to be. It doesn't stay constant. You don't buy the same basket of goods from 65 to 95. You don't even buy the same basket of goods from 25 to 45. So that's really where that first insight comes in in terms of the spending curve. What we see is as households' income rises, unfortunately, their spending rises right along with it. So that's where auto escalation is so important to interrupt that natural trend. And we see that uh, spending peak in people's early to mid-50s when their income candidly also peaks. And then you see it decline in real terms, really for the remainder of their life. And part of that is because children and parts of spouses leave because we're looking at cohorts of data. And that really defines often the steepness of that decline in real terms. But we do know that household sizes that are constant also see older people spending less than younger people and spending differently. They're spending more on healthcare, but they're spending a whole lot less on apparel and transportation and those types of things. And so the curve really is just saying, look, at, at one point in time, you have that kind of curved look over your life cycle or over the life cycle that we need to factor in. And so what that means for post-retirement, again, is... You know, the traditional, whether we're calculating retirement preparedness or planning tools available through 401k websites, usually that participant puts in, this is what I'm spending today, and then we grow it by an inflation factor. That's missing this behavior, this idea, I'm actually in real terms going to spend less. Now, spending still goes up because inflation still happens to people, but we have to kind of handicap it a little bit. In actual, uh, in, in, in actual real dollars, it goes up, but in terms of a percentage it, it goes down. Yeah. So in real, so what we do is from a real perspective, the behavior is to spend less at those older ages. And so what we factor in is, okay, all the under, we basically rebuild the basket and say, okay, apparel grows, you know, 2.6% compared with, with healthcare that grows at 4.8%. You're going to buy less clothes. So we see like a 3% decline in, in older people spending on clothes, but we see a rise in how much they're spending on healthcare. So we kind of rebuild the basket grow it by the underlying inflation factors by each sub subgroup and really get to about a one to one and a half percent inflation rate on spending post-retirement, which is drastically different than the historical inflation rate of like 3%. It's about half, right? So we're, the liability isn't growing as fast because again, that behavior is handicapping right. some of that growth. Well, and it begs the question, are financial advisors and financial planners too conservative in their, you know, their planning assessments. Mm -hmm. And with, you know, at the end of the day, it's partly art, it's partly science, but, you know, your inputs are going to determine your outputs, right? right? And so, you know, do you feel like based on your research is the, we always hear, and, and quite frankly, you know, I've, I've would buy into this, that we have this retirement crisis, but would you say that perhaps a lot of the rules of thumb, which often, you know, are kind of a one size fits none approach, mm -hmm. do you think they maybe overstate the, the severity of the retirement crisis for many people in America? Are people better off perhaps than, than what our Monte Carlo analysis tells them, if you will? I think it's a scenario that people should run, right? I, I always try to encourage a lot of what if scenarios to understand, look, you know, if you, retirees understand what their current lifestyle is. So I think it's easy for them to understand, okay, if you live this current lifestyle for the rest of your days, this is your outcome and, and what that looks like. 
Now let's look at how people actually behave. And let's, you know, I think talking to participants or talking to investors about the fact, and I think intuitively they feel it. I'm in my mid forties and I, you know, I know when my kids leave, I'm never skiing on President's Day weekend ever again, right? I'm never going to do these things (laughs) now because I'm not going to need to, and I'm not going to want to, right? So I think it's, I think people naturally kind of feel that that they're likely to make changes in their spending. And so overlaying that and, and showing what that outcome is, I think, I think we are being concerned. We want to be conservative. So I think running that scenario with inflation, helping people gauge that's important. The the downside though, is it's not just the assumption of those inputs that you mentioned and and highlighted as as risky, or I shouldn't say risky, overstating, but it's also how our tools work. So what our tools typically do, and this is particularly true for plan participants for whom all they've saved into is a tax deferred plan, If you are late in that forecast, pulling money out of a tax deferred plan to meet those overstated lifestyle costs, they owe more in taxes. And then it's going to go back into the IRA or the 401k. It's going to pull more money out and they're going to owe more in taxes. And so it's exacerbated by the fact that usually late in our forecast, people are concentrated or only have tax deferred assets. And so the combination of that overspending forecast and the tax implications of pulling money all out of a tax deferred account. I think uh, exacerbates the likelihood of success that we are showing participants as being as being because you have to take out, you have to take out a higher yeah you have to take out a higher amount right to account for taxes to right. be able to net the amount necessary to meet whatever that spending liability is. Exactly. I, I hear you. I'm, I'm actually you know early fifties. I have four kids, so I'm either never going to retire or I'm halfway to my own reality TV show. I'll be on Easy Street. So that's kind of my retire. That's kind of my retirement strategy. I'm just going to diversify amongst my kids, and uh, my wife and I'll spend three months with each of them. So um, yeah, and and so so in terms of those other those other insights that you mentioned, you know, it's one thing to look big picture and just say this is the overall trend of how spending plays out. What we want to do is get really smart about what actually happens around retirement. Back to this 70 to 80% replacement, back to sequence of return risk. There's a lot of things that happen at retirement that we want to be smarter about what people actually do. And so one of the things we've been able to do in our data set is we have about six to eight years worth of history. So we're building it up and hopefully we'll eventually have a whole you know, post-retirement life cycle. But we're able to identify within this de-identified database. So I should have been very clear up front. We obviously take privacy very seriously at JP Morgan. We have a very strict process by which we get access to this data. And it's all de-identified and rolled up so that we can't find any individual person. And, okay. and as a result, we have no ability compliance to... Will, compliance will be very... Compliance is very happy that you just you just dropped that disclaimer in. So check that check check that one off. Check that disclaimer. But we obviously can't reach out. You know, we couldn't reach out to you, Josh, and say, Josh, are you retired or not? And and that's obviously not a data element that typically is available in a bank. And so what we can do is we can observe the types of income flows that start or stop to hit, hitting their bank a person's bank account, assuming they're doing most of their banking with us. And so we can see payroll, payroll collection or payroll transfers stop. We can see social security start, annuities, pensions, et cetera. And so what we've done within our data set is we found about 120,000 you know, households that we observe a source of retirement income starting. So we see social security, an annuity or a pension. And then we're able to look before and after and say, okay, assuming that that retirement income collection signifies the transition of that household into retirement, what does the spending like look before and after? And what's really interesting is we see as an overall population, we see a spending surge. So that's the second big insight is that households tend to either be surging into retirement, so they're getting everything ready, they're you know buying that car that they're going to have, they're doing all their dental work while they're still working for their employer. So they're ramping up into retirement, and then it looks like some households do it the year after they retire. They've got newfound time, they're getting all of this stuff in order, but the, the byproduct of that is this surge that happens. And obviously, the more wealth people have, the more they surge, but it's really consistent across all participant levels. And so where we get concerned is obviously if you retire into a bad market, the idea of surging while you're experiencing poor returns in the market really can exacerbate sequence of return risk. And so we want to make sure that, that you know, participants and plan sponsors are aware of that behavior and, and taking steps to, to mitigate that. 
And then lastly, we see a tremendous amount of spending volatility in retirement, which really surprised us. So again, I think with the rule of thumb, you know, Catherine Roy is spending just round numbers, $100,000 before she retired, we would expect Catherine to settle in in her first or second year at seventy dollars to $80,000 and happily you know, spend at that rate through retirement. We don't see that at all. We see only about one in five households staying plus or minus 20%. So 80,000 in that example, up to 120,000 staying in that lane for the three years after they retire. Only one in five, we call them the steady eddies. But we see 56% of households really all over the place. They are either you know, spiking in particular years and c- coming back into the swim lane. You know, candidly, we have 10% that never hit the swim lane. They're, they're either permanently upshifting or, or permanently downshifting. But more, more than what's more like typical is this kind of vo- vacillation or volatility that we see around retirement. And so that for us suggests you know, a couple of things. One... It really does highlight this theme that we see that Americans often know what they're retiring from, but they don't really know what they're retiring to. And so they look like they're floundering in terms of how to go from being time poor to time rich, which you know, has implications for you know, how much liquidity they need to have harvested and available. So they have that flexibility, this idea that the emergency reserve fund really doesn't stop when you get to retirement, I think we've always talked about, well, your emergency reserve fund becomes your cash cushion or your funding for your first couple of years. Really, you're going to need that emergency reserve fund until you're, you know, at least at a a high level, until that volatility settles in and you have a better sense of what your spending is going to be ongoing. But we all know that medical expenses and other volatility comes later in retirement. So really maintaining that through time is going to be important because what you don't want to do is surge and have volatility when you're having challenging markets and need liquidity uh, at that right. point in time. Yeah. And that's so, and so what are some of the strategies? I think that's a, that's a great, you know, sequence of return risk. I think we're starting to hear more about certainly the way markets have, have been the past few years. You probably hear less about it, but just because it's, it's, if you've retired in the past few years, you know, obviously retired into a pretty good market overall, you know, we, we've often in our private client practice, you know, we often, you know, tell clients that actually the, the single riskiest day in their entire life is the day they retire. Like with each yeah. additional day, right? Risk goes down a little, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's declining, right? That kind of risk liability, if you will, is, is declining. Yeah. With sequence of return risk, you know, we hear so much about, and, and this is the challenge with, with, I think, communicating with just, you know, vast swaths of, of participants, all with different means and different levels of sophistication, but, you know, sequence of return risk, how do you, how do, how should retirement plan participants, investors, advisors who are helping, you know, these folks, what are some strategies that, that you would recommend in terms of how to guard against that sequence of return risk? And those first really three years is what it sounds like is that spending volatility is kind of all over the place in the swim lane, maybe in three to five years kind of settles in. What are some strategies to guard against, you know, that really risky time? So I think sequence of return risk, obviously, to your point, I completely agree that the day you retire is your biggest, your biggest risk day, because that's when your wealth is typically greatest. And so obviously, if you have negative returns, you're applying that to the biggest balance that you have, and that's going to really impact your your wealth for the long term. So the strategies that we typically talk about is one, having the right level of risk. So we've been talking since 2018, as you know, many participants and investors were concerned about what's going to happen next after such a bull market. The idea is that you really need to write risk. You need to make sure you're the right risk level for where you are in your in your life cycle. And what we find is that the do-it-yourself investors in plans older participants tend to carry much higher equity exposure than most target date funds would rec- would, would would support or would, would think is, is prudent because de-risking in advance of, of retirement, both the drawing on your portfolio, but also having all of that wealth at risk is really going to be important. And so, you know, we've done research in, in line with some of the research that's looked at the U-shaped glide path, right? This idea that you actually, instead of just gliding to retirement being flagged, you actually should de-risk as much as possible and have very little in the market as you are at that point where your wealth is greatest and then re-risk on the other side, yeah. you know, let's say five that years rising, in. That rising, that, that rising equity glide yeah, path. Michael, rising, Michael Kitsis, who 
who was a yes. uh, who was a, a a guest on the show as well. I know he's done quite a bit of research, which flies in yes. the face of you know what okay. we traditionally see right with this these target date funds that the glide path declining. This idea of a rising equity glide path after, but the research is actually fairly compelling when you when you read it when you look yes. at it. It just yeah. challenges conventional wisdom, if you will. Yeah, it really does. And when he wrote that initial paper, you know, the, the, the feedback I felt at the time before we ran our own numbers was, you know, one, yes, it, it marginally improves the outcome for participants, particularly for those participants who experience challenging returns early in their retirement. That's really where that rising glide path is going to really help them recover. The downside or that, that putting it into practice, which I'm sure he would agree with, is we know that as individuals or participants get older, their desire to take risk is on the decline. They want to take less and less risk as they get older. And so that coupled with, okay, I had a really rocky start to retirement and to improve my outcomes. Now I'm going to re-risk the combination of those two. I just don't think in practice really can, can, can be done. So I think what we've, what we've tried to do would be prudent or would be on the retail side would be suitable. I think, you know, if you talk about raising an 80 year old's equity to 70 or 80%, you know, that's really not going to kind of fly there. So well, we have, we've reached, I think, a happy middle, right, in terms of we, we glide down to about 40% in our target date series, we glide down to about 40% equity exposure, and we stay at 40% through the, the remainder of retirement, because that's really de-risking as much as we think is prudent for the liability that that participant has for the next 30 or 35 years, balancing then you know, a, a suitable amount of, of risk, uh, understanding that they're less risk-seeking over time. So we've tried to find kind of this happy medium the level of risk we feel comfortable with balancing you know that participant desire to take less risk over time. So I think that's one, right? Risking right. is important. You know, diversification is really important. Our our long-term capital market assumptions uh, have come out. And you know, if you're only going to be in the US and not well diversified, you know, you're really going to take you know return hit there and be potentially more volatile. And so we think you know just having continuing to have a well-diversified portfolio is going to be really important and can help mitigate some of that volatility as well. And then lastly, candidly, protected income or annuities are a great strategy to allocate to really within those five years of retirement to protect a portion of your account balance uh, and make sure that it's at least you know not being subjected to some of the market volatility and locking in you know, guaranteed income over the long term is, a, is another strategy to, to be thinking about. So whether it's an annuity that simply protects your principal for a period of time to help you get through those five years before, five years after, or whether it is one that's helping you buy more uh, retirement income over time is another strategy to think about. You know, I think it's interesting what, what you're saying is, is that, you know, really the complexity of this it's multivariate and your streams of, you know, how you replace income, you know, obviously some folks, you know, they're going to have one account as their 401k account, let's say, you know, right. but then they have, you know, they have social security income and strategies around that. But it, it really, you know, this is where the, the need to really be able to kind of layer different strategies together and weave them together and sequence them mm-hmm. differently. It's a, it's a, I, I, I worry at times in the industry and I realize the need to, you want to simplify, we want to simplify things as much as possible. But sometimes I think that, that, that conveys a false sense to people. They think that this, you know, things that are simple aren't, aren't always easy. And so, you know, I wonder at times, and, and you talked about this protected income and we'll, we'll get into this in a little bit, just in talking about things like the, the secure act and guaranteed income solutions and, and, and whatnot. You know, one of the strategies that that we often hear that that has been co-opted as kind of like retirement gospel is this four percent rule, right? Is that essentially, you know, you can you can generate, you know, income using four percent of, you know, your assets and and you know, the probability of of your money lasting 30 years is is really, really high. Now that was an independent RIA, Bill Bingen, who did that study back yep. in 1994. Yep. I think he wrote a paper about it. Yep. You know, again, it's been kind of co-opted and that's what we tell everybody, 4%. I guess my question is, and, and I often worry about rules of thumb because I think they can be very dangerous, but what do you think about the 4% rule? Do you think it, how do you think it's performed and do you think it still has validity and applies in 2020 and beyond? 
The 4% rule is a rule I love to hate. So exactly for the reasons that you've laid out, it, it's very simplistic, but it, you know, candidly, as I look back, I, I had, was just starting out in the industry in a financial planning group, a large wirehouse at the time. We were building tools and talking about, you know, spending and the fact that we factor these cash flows in and this very simplistic approach came across our desks. And I remember I was asked to, to kind of write a rebuttal or give my thoughts. And at the time, my rebuttal was, it really is better to build a plan around what somebody actually wants to accomplish rather than this rule of thumb. Now, what I've learned in my 25 plus years of doing this is most people have absolutely no idea what they spent. So I actually have learned to appreciate the simplicity of what Bill Bingen was trying to to solve for, which is, okay, I'm not going to saddle clients with building a budget or understanding what they're going to need or how that's going to change or a lot of that complexity. Let's just keep it simple and say, look, you've been able to amass this amount of wealth. What can you initially draw out? Again, grown with inflation. So back to that maybe flawed assumption, but again, conservative, that will give the highest probability that you're not going to run out of money after 30 years. And again, as you stated, the 4% rule was born. Now, what most people don't remember is the 4% rule is not just a spending policy. It's actually an asset allocation recommendation as well. And at the time, he recommended 75% or more in equities because that's you know, really what the target allocation should be based on how he analyzed those rolling periods, three-year periods that he, he looked at. So you know, we do a lot to say, look, the 4% rule, I think a lot of participants and, and plant sponsors hear the 4% rule, but we try to highlight, well, you can't be all in cash and support the 4% rule. Well, you have to have an investment strategy along with that. And that's really where the complexity comes in. Having that diversified strategy that's being managed over time, as well as what we would argue a dynamic approach to withdrawal is going to be better in terms of course correcting. If things are challenging, pulling back, if things are great, you know, spending a little bit more is going to be a more efficient use of, of your capital over time. So in theory, based on our long-term capital market assumptions, it still works. I know there's been lots of discussion about should it be two, should it be three, particularly in a low interest rate environment. Obviously, we're using well-diversified portfolios. We're assuming you're drawing down and not just using interest and dividends to to meet your spending needs. So it still works from a forward-looking expectation perspective, but it is very flawed in how it has performed historically. So one of the charts we have in our guide to retirement, we've looked at 63 rolling 30-year periods in time and looked at if you had employed or implemented the 4% rule in that environment, so in that inflationary environment, so high inflation in the 70s, et cetera. So modeled that pretty thoroughly. What you find is 84% of the time, you would not have run out of money, which is really what the 4% rule is trying to do. The 4% rule is trying to protect you and find that balance of how much can you spend with a really high probability that if really bad things happen, that you're not going to run enough money. It is not a efficient spending strategy that consumes wealth efficiently to give people as much utility and spending happiness when they want it, which tends to be early in retirement, and use capital that's been dedicated to that spend down very efficiently. Because on the flip side, you have a one in five chance that you would have ended across all those 30-year periods with five times the amount of wealth that you started with. So you know, it's really trying to, to, to push longevity risk. It's trying to make you know, people make a trade-off. Early in retirement, you're going to pull back to this 4% limit and you're going to stick to it. The risk there is that you're telling that early retiree when they have time, they have health, they have a bucket list, they want to do things. Okay, you can't spend the degree that you want to. And then when you're 95, you're going to have five times the amount that you start with. So that's what I mean by this inefficiency, right? What I when you can't really, when you can't really, when you can't really, when it, when certainly maybe you can use, well, you probably can't use it, and you certainly can't enjoy it if you're you're going to enjoy it a lot more. It's probably 65 yeah, exactly. than at 95. Yeah, you're going to much higher utility, much yeah. better life satisfaction. I mean, even giving that money away uh, is going to make you happier than having it at 95. So, so we really think it's better for participants and individuals to think about, okay. And I know it's tough. I, you know, one of the things that we're concerned about is I think we see many participants and, and investors not consuming their wealth to enjoy their retirement because they're fearful of running out of money. You know, I think we need to move into a world where there are, whether it's an annuity or spend down price, things that, that a participant can be thoughtful about. Okay, of my, my balance, this is the amount I feel comfortable consuming. This is the cushion I want to always be able to maintain. Now give me a vehicle that helps me do that in a systemic way. And that being said, 
they're always going to need that emergency reserve. They're always going to need a liquidity pool because we know life happens. So there's this idea of how do I set up this kind of systematic distribution to me through various vehicles? And then how do I make sure I keep some liquidity to be able to handle you know, unexpected medical expenses, cars that break, you know, those types of things, you know, that really should be kept separate and, and a pool of assets, right? Or an account should be available for them to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and be able to put some guardrails around it, if you will, right? right? Yep. You know, one of the things you had mentioned before, just in terms of this spending curve is healthcare. And, you know, you, you, you hear lots of different perspectives around, around healthcare and, you know, what, what the, you know, one of the statistic I think I've heard is that, you know, the average 65 year old couple that retires, is going to need somewhere around a quarter of a million dollars in, in healthcare expenses. You know, obviously that is, is there's certainly from an industry perspective, I, you know, we have a vested interest in getting people to save more, but it, do you find that healthcare, like does healthcare costs, I think you mentioned like 4.8% on averages that it grows or whatnot. Recently, T. Rowe Price has come out, who also does, I think, some really interesting research, but had come out and, and they're actually taking a little bit of a different approach. And I'm very interested in your thoughts, but saying that they feel like the case for, for healthcare costs has actually been, has been overstated when you actually look at, at the data. That's a different, that's the first, that's the first time I've heard that narrative. Uh, maybe that just means I'm not, you know, I, I don't read enough or listen enough, but that's an interesting, that seems to be counter to what a lot of the industry has been saying. So what have you found in your research that uh, around healthcare and what the, you know, the total estimated, call it, you know, healthcare spend will be, and how does that impact, you know, retirement, you know, income replacement and retirement spending? Yeah, so I think healthcare costs are Americans' number one concern, regardless of where you are in the wealth and income spectrum. It's it's often very, it feels like a big unknown. And with some of the narrative that you laid out, I do agree that we've, we've scared people. And so I, I really steer away from talking about the lump sum aspect of it, because it, it leads to really interesting headlines. One would be women are going to pay more for healthcare and retirement. And while that's true, it's not because women consume more healthcare, it's that they live longer. So this idea yeah, that you're present valuing a stream of expenses, you know, you don't, you don't go and say to a client or a participant, you're going to spend $100,000 on Starbucks in retirement. You don't, you, know, you don't present value those types of expenses. So why would we do it for healthcare? So we, we prefer to, to talk about it in annual numbers. And, and what we find is that consistent with T. Rowe, that Medicare-related cost growth has been much more muted uh, in the last five to seven years. And the forecast is to stay that way. We just got our new numbers for next year's guide that we're consuming and trying to digest what it looks like. And that really, that we see that trend continuing. When you look historically over the last 50 years, we are in somewhat of a trough of healthcare inflation over time. And so as a result of that, we actually, this year in the guide, dropped our growth rate for Medicare-related costs from 6.5% to 6. Just because we couldn't, we could no longer, when you look at that, those forward trends, we could no longer really support that 6.5% growth rate. And what I mean by 6, though, is 6 is the combination of both inflation, so that 4.8% that you mentioned, but the fact that you buy more healthcare as you get older. So that 6% is both the combination of just how much costs are rising and how much more you're buying of healthcare over time. So that's why it's so so high. So we really think it's important for people to have that in their plan. If I'm a plan sponsor and I have a record keeper that has a you know planning tool that that's actually a line item so people can see those costs. And the higher income people have or the more they've saved, they probably need to be thinking about you know, some of the surcharges and some of those things coming down the pike as Medicare gets more challenged. But I would definitely support, you know, Tiba's approach that or their, their conclusion, you know, we're seeing that the, the costs not grow as quickly. And, and some of that has been conjecture. The Federal Reserve has done some work. That it is the demographic shift as the baby boomers are now squarely kind of half on Medicare and half not-ish, right? That that Medicare actually is a dampener of you know, the, the runaway healthcare expenses uh, growth that we've seen in the past. And so that obviously would be expected to continue as more and more boomers, you know, shift into that being their, their medic- medical support provider. 
And why, I'm just curious, why, why is that? Is that Medicare just based on like reimbursement rates or something like that where they can cut, like why, why is it, why does it act as a dampener? Yeah, so it is, it is related to the reimbursement rates that are constrain or constraining, constraining if you're on original Medicare, for example, constraining doctors' ability to, to charge you costs that they might be charging on younger individual, individuals on employer-based care or employer-based insurance. You know, Medicare is not going to reimburse uh, at those rates. The other you know, interesting dynamic that we've heard a lot about, we've learned a lot about through our equity research team that tracks the insurers is the fact that half of uh, individuals going on Medicare are choosing Medicare Advantage and Medicare Advantage is more of a networked regional type of Medicare, medical system. And studies have suggested that because, you know, Medicare Advantage plans are more like HMOs, a network of hospitals and doctors, they actually are incented from a pricing perspective to produce better outcomes for their patients. So you'll see much more preventative medicine. That's why you see, you know, silver sneakers and you see vision, dental, and hearing often wrapped up into Medicare Advantage plans because those private insurers are really trying to contain costs. Um, they're really trying to shift more, to, again, to that, that preventative view. And so that's contained costs on the Medicare Advantage side as well with some key learnings around how, you know, if you have a, an individual where you have all, you know, you have doctors and hospitals that know all of their history versus original Medicare, where I can go to any doctor in the country who may never see the file that I, you know, in New Jersey have with my New Jersey doctor, I go to another doctor in Florida who doesn't have that background, right, that the quality of care is, is a little bit eroded. So I think the, just the sheer numbers of people on these, these Medicare Advantage plans is helping to contain costs as well. You know, one of the things that that JP Morgan has developed and you guys have looked at is really kind of like a retirement spending framework. You know, you often hear about kind of like the three-legged stool of, of, you know, retirement income, namely Social Security and retirement accounts and then personal savings and you know, used to be pensions kind of factored in and obviously far fewer people have pensions than maybe in the past. What is JP Morgan's view on that retirement spending framework? Because I do think that is the, and I, I think we all realize this, but especially the defined contribution world has really been geared around accumulation. And you had mentioned, you know, baby boomers are starting to kind of in full bloom retiring. I think I read a statistic recently that something like 10,000 people are exiting the workforce on a daily basis. And so this need to be able to essentially monetize this pool of assets and and generate retirement income, which is a, a, a very different thing when you're just trying to accumulate. And so the first question I have is, you know, maybe your thoughts around a, a, from a practical standpoint, this kind of retirement income framework, I think that you guys had I've seen you talk about what, what does that look like? And then I'd be interested in how you think as an industry, how do we need that, the, the, specifically the, I would say probably the defined contribution industry, but how does the retirement industry need to essentially evolve to move from this accumulation mindset to this decumulation mindset? It's a lot. To- <laughs> There's a lot of questions tied up right there. I hope you good luck parsing that. Well, you know, I, I think you know, with this shift of boomers into retirement or the demographic shift, the desire for plan sponsors to keep maybe more participants in plan to you know preserve pricing and, and buying power, as well as, you know, candidly, more paternalistic plan sponsors who really want to make sure if they've helped participants accumulate that they can be helpful and do their best from a fiduciary perspective to help them turn that into a paycheck, right? A post-retirement paycheck. So I think there are a number of reasons driving that. So kind of with that background, I think the other last statistic to layer on is this kind of cliff we're on relative to coverage in any way from a DB plan. So I think based on LIMRA data, today's 65-year-old has a one in two chance that they have some level of DB income. I'm not implying it's, you know, full last five years of highest earnings level of income, but they've had some exposure to a DB plan that likely was frozen that they can turn on to some degree. That's going to drop to, I think, about a third of the back end of the boomers and then drop very precipitously for the the next generation. So I think that idea of having some sort of income floor is what we're now, I think, running square into. And so from our spending framework perspective, uh, it's often referred to as guaranteed the floor, but it's 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 really informed by our spending research. You know, number one, we really do believe that a guaranteed solution or protected income, particularly for individuals who only have Social Security, 
is going to be is going to be important. And we see that in our data. You see households that have free cash flow coming in with the same level of wealth that those that don't. Their spending behaviors are very different. And and so I think participants, individuals, humans, right, we're used to having cash flow coming through our door and controlling our spending and saving to some degree. And a lot of the mental issues or the emotional issues transitioning to retirement where that stops back to that mechanism of generating that free cash flow, we think is going to help more participants enjoy the wealth they've been able to accumulate. So we see, you know, a guaranteed portion for your regular expenses. The second point I'd make on that is we're doing research right now to try to provide greater insight as to for given levels of wealth, given areas of the country where you live, given levels of retirement income, what, from a spending perspective, are your consistent expenditures as a proportion of your total spending, and where is it variable? And so what we've tried to do is get away from this judgmental view of discretionary and non-discretionary and have tried to shift it to kind of consistent spending versus volatile spending to better inform, you know, potentially the amount that should be guaranteed. And so an example of that, interestingly, that we've uncovered, and it's 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 not rocket science, I mean, it's obvious now that we've now that I talk about it, but I think most people would put healthcare expenses as non-discretionary. They would put that as that absolutely should be covered by some sort of guaranteed stream. Well, the reality is that healthcare expenses are quite volatile, right? They they they're not other than your premiums and your your you know your ongoing costs for for Medicare, for example, you know, going into the hospital or having a big bill, those tend to hit kind of all at once. And so, you know, you wouldn't want to be uh, having that systematic payment, be responsible for those kind of shocks. That's really where you need an asset management product or liquidity bucket to be able to cover those shocks. So we're going to try to, to, to come out with more insights related to this, this relationship between steady expenses, how those change over time. Again, very much driven by where you live in the country and your cost of living. And then where, you know, do you need more flexibility and maybe more of an asset management product? So the guaranteed and protected portion, we're very, we think are very much critical, a critical component of a retirement income plan. But we know based on the surge, the volatility, the healthcare expenses, having a portfolio that's liquid that can be tapped uh, either systematically through a spend down option or a withdrawal rate guidance that's optional for participants to take advantage of, but also a separate pool that's really dedicated for those emergency expenses or things that, that happen all at once is an important kind of third leg of that stool uh, to have. So I think that that lays out the importance of protection for those regular expenses, having a dynamic uh, withdrawal strategy on a portfolio for those variable kind of systematic expenses. And then again, that emergency reserve, conservatively invested, you know, available to meet those, those shocks can be helpful over time. You know, as we, we talk a little bit about the SECURE Act and, and obviously creating some safe harbors around guaranteed income, and, and certainly, you know, we hear a lot about protected income and, and these solutions. And I would argue that we're, we're still in, I've said this on numerous podcasts, actually, because when this topic comes up is, I still feel like we're in the, you know, the very early innings, you know, to use a baseball analogy, maybe even in spring training, not that the season hasn't even started in terms of what these products, you know, what these products look like. But what do you think? How do you think? One, do you think the it's really interesting. One of the things I love about your research and and is informed, quite frankly, by the fact that you are affiliated with the bank. You can see these. You you have a, a window right into these spending patterns. It's not just in gross aggregate aggregate dollars spent, but you can actually see into the types of expenses that are categorized when somebody you know uses their credit card, if you will. And so it's interesting between like things that people, people will tell you the truth much better with their actions than what they say. Mm -hmm. At least that's what I've, I've kind of found in life. And so you hear a lot about how people want guaranteed income when that question is posed to them. But then you don't see, at, at least so far, some of these solutions that have existed within plans, in my experience, they, they're not taken advantage of. And so one of the things is, what, what do you think, do you think people want it more as a safety net? Like what, what do you think the, 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 you know, retire the, the investor participant retiree appetite is for actually these guaranteed solutions in terms of taking advantage of them if they are available? Do you think there's a mismatch at all in terms of what people say they want and how they're actually voting with their wallets, if you will? I definitely, I said it on so many focus groups and, and 
you know, try even you know, partnering with ALI, the Alliance for Lifetime Income, and understanding the research that they've done, which I think is really fabulous. Individuals love the description of what an annuity provides. So I mean, that's why I love using the term protected income as a, as a way of describing what it is, because that's really the benefit that the annuity is providing to you. But invariably, once you say that it's an annuity, you know, there's a there's this kind of bad taste in everyone's mouth. So I think I think it is, again, the features of it, what an annuity provides to you, everyone finds attractive. But when you ask them, would you buy one at a particular point in time, it's very difficult for them to do that. So I I think two things. One, obviously a plan sponsor, the, the fiduciary concerns and the fiduciary coverage and portability and all those different issues with, with making one of the making a an annuity option available in plan, I think there still needs some room there to, to provide that coverage and get people more comfortable to do it. But once, even when you put it in plan, having been with a firm that did it, I think 20 years ago, and the, the issue is how do you encourage participants or how do you facilitate participants either understanding how much might be recommended or advice, you know, and that's where our research we're hoping can be informative there, or how do you buy it for them? We all know the power of inertia and the fact that if if people own an annuity, they don't want to give it up, right? But it's that hurdle of getting them to buy it that is the, the issue. And so that's where I think whether it is the strategies that are starting to embed the annuity into the target date fund. So you know, by taking some of that equity allocation instead of putting it in fixed income, putting it into an annuity product of some sort and having them buy in over a period of time, I think gets over or could be really powerful to break through that behavioral issue or that behavioral bias. Because again, I think if we had more participants get to retirement with greater protected income coverage, that is going to turn the tide right to some degree. Now, the, but the trade-off is based on the research we've done is by taking some of that out of the market, putting it into an annuity product, yes, you get more guaranteed income, but you, you're you depressing the downs, the, the upside opportunity that keeping that money invested in that target date fund for longer could mean in terms of overall spending ability post-retirement. So it's that trade-off. Nothing, nothing is ever free. <laughs> so getting over these behavioral biases and, and, and buying it in the target date fund solves one issue, but on the, the trade-off is you know, overall maximum amount of lifetime income for that participant is, is somewhat dampened as a result of that trade-off. So I think we need both. I think we need strategies that help people buy a little piece of pension as they go along. And I think we also need good advice and structures as a participant is making this decision. They've accumulated the wealth that they've been able to accumulate. How do I make a good informed decision about how much it makes sense to protect with the best thinking possible? And how, and what do other people do like me? Or what do other people who've, who've made this decision, what does their spending look like with similar levels, levels of guaranteed income coverage, I think can be quite powerful in helping people you know, make a more informed decision, a more comfortable decision about the amount that they might want to think about putting into protected income versus keeping in more of a, a portfolio to, to be able to spend down systematically. Right. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to co-op protected income if that's okay. I like uh, I I like that. I like that. I like that term. And, you know, similar to you, you know, I started my career in a large wirehouse and, you know, the there is absolutely a negative connotation with the word annuity. And some of it's well deserved, quite frankly, right? There's some really crappy products that are out there. Um, I mean, I just every uh, time I dip into annuities and out, the level of complexity and confusion, I it's overwhelming. So I think simplification there would be really helpful too. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So we we've done for again, um, and and my co-founder Pat Collins, who who is one of the 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 smartest, best planners I, I feel like in the industry, and. You know, he he uh, for for a client one time actually parsed through and read through like a 500 page prospectus around an annuity and, and you know, ultimately did a bunch of analysis in terms of like what the guarantees would offer over even just like a I think just like a, you know, a simple kind of bond ladder and whatnot. And ultimately, the juice in that case, and this was a number of years ago, wasn't worth the squeeze. But his key takeaway, which I thought was interesting, is he said, I guarantee you no advisor, broker, whatever selling these products knows what the heck is going on underneath it because of the right. complexity. And and so certainly annuities and, and maybe changing the connotation. Again, some of it is well-deserved. You see some of these products where you know, I, I was always taught that 
you know, the higher the commission, the worse the product because the, you know, the harder it is to sell and the the longer you get kind of locked up, right? But things like an immediate annuity, which, you know, is really just a kind of an immediate exchange with an insurance company to, you know, guarantee a stream of income. They certainly have their, they certainly have their place. And I think, I think the word annuity mainly based on the product has has gotten a really negative connotation, quite frankly, in the RIA world and with, you know, fee-only fiduciary advisors. And because quite frankly, there hasn't been a product mix. You know, you've had these high commission products, which right. it's kind of, is definitely a dirty word in kind of fiduciary land. Yeah. But I do think as, as we're starting to see more product development that, that quite frankly are fitting into a fiduciary framework, I think maybe can begin to turn the tide in terms of the negative, the negative connotations, you know, not, not, it's kind of that one size fits all approach, right? Not every annuity is bad. There's certainly really bad ones out there. Not all of them, not all of them are bad. And maybe, you know, maybe because of the fiduciary, you know, rules and regulations that quite frankly, the ERISA DC world imposes, Maybe that's the perfect environment to kind of destigmatize the idea of protected income or the word annuity over time. I guess time will. Uh, I guess time will tell. And it's interesting. People don't like trade-offs, even though that's the I found the best way to educate and get people to kind of get off the fence and make a decision is by posing trade-offs. People, I don't think naturally like that because this idea of you know I have to, you know, people experience the pain of loss right at twice the rate, right. you know, roughly than you yeah, know totally. they experience the joy of gain. And so this idea that I have to give something up. We've even we 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 are doing our second. And um, we call it seeking clarity, but it's a financial wellness and well-being survey. Um, we did it last year for the first time. We had almost 1,900 people take it. Oh wow! Um, this year we're a little bit less. We've got about 1,250 people take it. But we added a section this year on trade-offs. And so one of the things we asked was, what do people value about their their DC plan the most? And by far, it's their employer contribution. But it's interesting when you start to pose trade-offs. Would you be willing to take? a 5% one-time bonus in cash or a retirement contribution, it heavily skews towards a retirement contribution. I think the the desire for that when you pose that trade-off is coming up. People have, have based on the survey data so far that we haven't dug in, just starting to dig into, but people would be are more willing now to give up a reduction in healthcare. They'd rather have a higher retirement contribution than a reduction in health premiums, which I think is kind of fascinating when you start to pose these trade-offs. So maybe that's something as an industry we need to do a better job of is we need to pose these trade-offs uh, to help people understand yeah, you can't have you know, the consequences yeah. of decisions, right? Yeah. If, if something sounds too good to be true, it usually is, right? So it's right. helping them right. understand that. Also, I, I like your, I mean, those two data points that you just shared are very counter to what the history has been. So that's Great news that the tide may be turning in terms of really valuing those retirement benefits, which is, I think, really great news and a great insight. Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. And even things like things like bonuses or even income, it's interesting. Up to uh, one of the questions we posed is, would you be willing to take 5% less in compensation for a 5% retirement contribution? And part of this is trying to create utility for our plan sponsor clients to say, look, at the end of the day, you know, if you pay, it's it the the cost impact to you is neutral, right? If you if you give right. somebody a you were going to give them a five percent right. raise, you know, and you decide to give them a five percent retirement contribution, it's kind of neutral. But it's interesting that what it seems like is at five percent, people are willing to take the retirement contribution, and that percentage starts to go down as it goes to ten percent and fifteen percent. Fifteen percent people want the cash at a much higher rate, but even you know even. It is a really kind of it's it's fascinating with some of these trade-offs. And I do think retirement, I think because probably plan sponsors have focused so much on healthcare and have really gotten their plans, quite frankly, probably into pretty good shape. It seems like the tide is turning and now the shift and you know, employees are starting to say, Okay, well, I feel good about retire like my my healthcare. Right. Now I want to focus on retirement. So it'll be interesting just in terms of of that 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 trade-off data. What do you think in terms of, you, you had mentioned earlier, which I totally agree with, and I think the research, especially at the top end, the largest plans, I'm seeing a shift. I think the data supports this, is that large plan sponsors, more than, than I've ever seen in the past, are interested in keeping assets in the plan post-retirement. I, don't, I, I think even smaller companies as well, but, but at maybe a, a less of a clip, what do you think, what type of plan design strategies do you think employers 
should consider adopting in order to in order to accomplish that if they're serious about keeping plan assets post retirement in the plan what what do you think how do you think plans need to change in order to to accomplish that if that's an important goal for a plan sponsor yeah i really i really think establishing what many are referring to as retirement income tier or this idea that there are investments uh, and options that you want to make available to participants as they approach and live in retirement. And that may be different from what you might want in the core menu and whether you can create a different experience for that type of participant. So it's clear that these are the right options for them. You know, we know that you can limit access to investments as long as that doesn't, or an investment choice, as long as that doesn't discriminate. Uh, so obviously if you have a very diverse workforce, you, you could take advantage of that option. And what I mean by that is only allowing access to an annuity option to people 50 or over 55 or whatever you know age you want to you want to you know decide that at as a plan sponsor and as a fiduciary but obviously taking into consideration the the discrimination testing implications there but you know i think i always go back to that participant view and so when i when we look at the types of participants that that are likely if they do stay in plan what their trajectory looks like and what investment options are best aligned to their outcome, we see really four different, very distinct profiles. So the first profile is probably not a likely candidate to stay in plan and is not where I would encourage plan sponsors to spend much time, but that's really the rising wealth type of participant. So they're going to spend what they're going to spend. Their account value is going to be higher at the end of the year. It's going to keep growing. You know, that's likely a participant who's going to move out of plan, work with a financial advisor, and that's an estate planning you know, issue. Now, if you did want to, you know, have an investment option for that participant, it'd be total return. You know, how do you kind of maximize for that next generation type of idea? But the other three, I think, really are important profiles for plan sponsors to, to understand, you know, the, the propensity for their participant base to fall into one of these three and then what investment options make the most sense. So we see, you know, profile number one that is a priority would be that preserved principle type of participant. So that participant, I I think this idea of, I, I don't want my account balance to go down. I just want to generate current income enough for me to be able to spend. I'll constrain my spending to be able to do that. That is an emotional and behavioral, I think, a driven profile to a greater degree than really a an estate planning goal, right? I think when I started my career, this idea of preserving a principle and giving it to the next generation was very much a priority of many households that, that we worked with. Now, I think it's coming out of fear and, and this desire to, to, to hold on as much as you can. And I think that's also a byproduct of the fact that we've always communicated retirement account balances as account balances rather than as an income stream, which is really what they're intended to right. provide. So for that, you know, participant though, if they're going to sit in that pool, they they need current income. So total, you know, multi-asset solutions that are generating as much income as possible, equity income solutions, things that are generating as much current income without putting a higher degree or that much higher risk on that participant, you know, I think is is important. We know that dividend paying stocks can be really good until they're bad and aren't producing that level of income. So, you know, having some options there, I think can be helpful. And then the other two profiles are one, the, the partial drawdown participants. So that participant really to augment their lifestyle, they're going to need to spend a portion of their wealth. For them, a systematic withdrawal plan or, or a, 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 obviously you're seeing growing numbers of these types of solutions that combine an asset allocation with withdrawal rate guidance or distribution to participants on that amount of wealth that they want to spend down, that would be a good solution for that participant. And then unfortunately, we do have some inadequate savers and long lifers who have a high likelihood that they're going to run out of money with what they've been able to accumulate. And really for them, protected income is going to be the most efficient way for them to get the most income as they possibly can with the amount of wealth they've been able to generate. And I think for even though that those four profiles lay out high level asset class or asset strategies or investment strategies that make the most sense, I think for those last two profiles, a combination, as we've talked about, is going to be you know, ideal, particularly for that partial drawdown participant, how much should be guaranteed, how much should be in that drawdown product is again, where, you know, we've spent time on the, on the advice front there and helping that participant make a good decision. So I think creating a a menu, I think, I think it's, it's twofold, right? It's, it's as a plan sponsor, it's how do I make sure I have those investment options available to my post-retirement or my retiree cohort and then it goes back to, you know, what we've covered. How do you get those used in a prudent way? Is it advice through an advisor? Is it a tool where they can make an informed decision about how to combine these investment vehicles for their 
unique situation, which is why decumulation is so hard. It isn't just all about saving and diversified strategy. It's my, my needs are unique and I need to figure out how much I want to dedicate to these various solutions. So whether it's that advisor or tool or whether it's embedding that in that target date fund or embedding it in a solution is the second step that I think fund sponsors need to think carefully about. So they're not only just providing the right options, but they're making sure they're used in the best way possible for, for those participants who are staying in plan. You know, it's interesting in the industry, you hear a lot about the need to expand coverage, yeah. right? That more people have. And, you know, we're seeing some things just from a, a statutory perspective of state run plans to kind of expand coverage and whatnot. You know, I think, and, and I've talked about this uh, before on the podcast, as I mentioned, Kitsis and I had a, a great discussion about this, but, you know, one of the things is that we need to expand, not just coverage so people can save, but, but I think expand access to advice. You know, right now, there's a really small percentage, quite frankly, small percentage of, you know, Americans who have the the means, the wealth to really access good fiduciary-based, but also sophisticated advice. And you have this huge swath of Americans who, quite frankly, don't meet the minimums of, of many firms, don't have enough money. And so I think one of the challenges in, as an industry, we need to figure out how we can bring planning, real planning, you know, to the masses. Easier easier problem to solve or, or hard problem to solve from that perspective. But I do think that that is, and, and we're seeing more and more, whether it's with financial wellness programs and what that looks like, is that that is such a, I kind of view financial wellness like I view annuity is like, it could mean all kinds of different things, right. you know, yep. you, you get a lot of different answers to what wellness, what wellness is. You know, as we wrap up though, I, I want to pose two final questions to you. The first is this, is how do you see the nature of retirement changing over the next five to 10 years? Like what, what is, what is retirement going to, going to look like over the next five, 10, 15 years, let's say, how's it going to change? How's it going to evolve? How's it going to stay the same? Oh, wow. That's a good question. You know, one, I hope that we do make progress on this retirement income Conundrum. So I, you know, I uh, I started focusing on retirement income in 2003. So you know, it's almost 20 years ago. Where you know we knew baby boomers are going to be retiring, and how are they actually going to construct their retirement income plan? And I think we've made some progress, but I do think with data, with user experiences that we can construct, with you know potentially the ability to give more advice and guidance in the space, I think we can really make strides uh, in in you know developing. Well thought out retirement income plans for more participants and, and investors. I think hopefully that's number one. Yeah, I think the other thing that we're seeing in our data is increasingly retirement is not, at least at the household level, it's not, I stop working one day and I'm fully retired the next and I've started all my retirement income. We actually see you know, almost 50% of our households who started retirement income still have some level of work income coming into the household. So that could be a spouse right, continuing to work and one is retired. As an example, it could be the same person you know, also, you know, having some work income continue and, and starting retirement income. So I think we want to get smarter about that transitional period and how do we you know, really understand what the goal of that household is because when we do qualitative data around that, particularly for lower affluent households, that's their, that's been their plan, that one person is going to, going to continue to work for a longer period of time, or there's an age difference within the couple. And so how can we start being better informed in the 401k world with not just what's happening in the 401k, but what does it mean from a household perspective and the overall household's preparedness for their retirement? And how do we do a better job of, of doing that? So I think Better retirement income plans, you know, and options and strategies and clarity in plan, I think is number one. And number two, being being more informed about how individual participants fit into a household structure and what the real retirement preparedness picture look, looks like. Is it is it as dire as maybe you mentioned at the beginning? Is there a crisis? Or is it because... We, because we're smarter about all the different dimension that retirement means, social security, 401k, work as, a, as an option, you know, how are, are Americans really putting those pieces together more successfully than we, we think today? 
Excellent. So the last question I have for you as we as we finish is, you know, the 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 purpose of this podcast of the fiduciary you podcast is to make ERISA fiduciary smarter. And one of the questions I like to ask every guest get, at the end is, you know, if you could offer only one piece of advice to ERISA fiduciaries, maybe that's a plan sponsor, committee members, you know, a, a fiduciary advisor, what would be your best piece of advice for ERISA fiduciaries? So I I come back to have you defined well the problem that you're trying to solve and are you measuring the success of your plan against solving that for that outcome? Because I still think that we're in a world where, and our own plan sponsor surveys show this, where plan sponsors want to be getting more participants across the finish line, which is our goal as well. But yet when you look at how they're measuring their plan, they're still looking at you know, contribution rates in aggregate. They're still looking at diversification at the plan level, not down to a more granular level. And they're not putting that together to really measure and benchmark themselves as to whether they're, as a fiduciary, making decisions in the plan that's really helping them accomplish the outcome that they want their plan to achieve. So I think I think shifting or thinking about or helping plan sponsors being much more thoughtful, not just about the outcome, but the measurement and how they're actually holding themselves accountable for achieving the outcome that they want is something I encourage more, more advisors to help plan sponsors do. I think that is, I think that is great advice. You know, if you don't know what problem you're trying to solve, mm-hmm. you're in trouble, mm-hmm. you're in trouble. And it is interesting. Some of the antiquated, um, and, and, and actually it kind of, I think speaks to the point that we talked about a little bit earlier is that, you know, in a, in a, a purely kind of accumulation world and where that's really the, the goal, right, is, you know, not to, to diminish the importance of participation and contribution rates because those are critical, but they take much more of a, you know, much more of a focus as, as inputs as opposed to what I think you're talking about is more of getting people across the finish line heavily influenced by things like participation and contribution rates and, you know, fees and, and rates of return. But those things don't stand alone, right? They have to be kind of weaved into, you know, they, they influence what that outcome looks like. So I think that's, that's great advice. I have really enjoyed our conversation today. I think, I think you have done your, you and your team have incredible insights about retirement in general. I think in particular, you are very gifted in terms of being able to, to, to talk about these things in, in both a sophisticated way, but in a simple way as well. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to be a guest and, and sharing your ideas and your thoughts with, with, uh, with my audience. So thank you so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed our conversation. You asked really good questions. So thank you. I don't have any answers, but I, I try to ask decent questions. So <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Catherine Roy from J.P. Morgan. I hope you enjoyed our discussion and feel like you're in a better position to understand the evolving retirement income landscape. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryu.com. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along with show notes, articles, free tools, and online courses. Make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help other people find the show when I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast. And now for some disclosures. Greenspring Advisors is a registered investment advisor. The opinions I express on this show are my own and do not reflect the opinions of my guests or the companies they work for. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. The information and content presented on the show is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk, and unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives, and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. And past performance is not indicative of future performance.